0: Hey everybody, welcome to episode 25 of Waking Up to Narcissism. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and host of the Virtual Couch podcast. And I am very, very excited for today's topic because today I'm bringing on a good friend. If you are a Virtual Couch listener at all, you have heard him four times on the Virtual Couch. His name is Nate Christensen. He is an associate professional clinical counselor formerly known as an intern. So he is my associate. And the way that it works in the world of therapy, but I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. If I went back to school and if I got my doctorate in psychology, then I would become a clinical psychologist. And then there's also a psychiatrist. And a psychiatrist is actually a medical doctor that goes to medical school and does rounds. And when I've talked with other psychiatrists, they actually deliver babies, they spend time working with pediatric medicine, or they uh, go learn how the foot and ankle works, and they learn the gastrointestinal system. But they decide to focus on mental health And they can prescribe medications. And I'm being a little bit lighthearted or joking here. The licensed marriage and family therapist, the licensed clinical social worker, the licensed professional clinical counselor, Nate is an associate professional clinical counselor. I would say we're almost the the bottom-ish of the food chain as far as mental health professionals. We get our undergraduate degree or a bachelor's degree. We go on and we get a master's degree. And mine was a master's degree in counseling. And then you enter the field as, in my day, it was an intern. Now they call them associates. And you have to get 3,000 hours working under a clinical supervisor, somebody that you can um, turn to and they can help you with information or maybe process cases that you're working on. And then after you get the 3,000 hours, then you take a couple of licensing exams, depending on uh, where your state is. And after the taking the licensing exams, then you are a licensed marriage and family therapist, a licensed clinical social worker, a licensed professional clinical counselor. So Nate is working on those 3,000 hours. He and I have clinical supervision every week. And I've had him on my podcast four times because he is just a fun person to talk to and has a wealth of knowledge. He also helps me run my men's group, my Path Back Recovery Group, for people that are um, trying to move away from turning to pornography as a coping mechanism. And we have a weekly group meeting, and it's phenomenal. And my kind of go-to joke is that when I want someone to sound smart and say really smart things about the brain in particular, then I will ask if Nate has anything. And he always has something, and I love that. So today we are going to do quite a deep dive on the, we're going to to talk about the brain and narcissism. We're going to talk about the neurobiology. We're going to talk about the latest research and data, which I think will maybe help play into the nature or nurture and what really does create those narcissistic traits, tendencies or full-blown narcissistic personality disorder. So I think today is just going to be a really, really fascinating listen for anyone that feels like they are waking up to their own narcissism or waking up to the narcissism in a spouse, or in a parent, or a child, or anyone, a coworker, because you're going to hear just a lot of research in today's episode. And I almost feel like my job today is, uh, is sidekick, because I'm going to probably be ADD, breaking into some of the things that Nate's talking about, and giving some real-life examples of what I see in my office. And then Nate is going to have data to back that up. So I can't wait to get to that. And I do want to just read one email before we get there. The emails, I feel like the last week or two, I don't know if the podcast is just really finding its place, but the amount of emails is increasing every day and they are brilliant and beautiful and I see you and I want to hear them. And I've mentioned in the past, uh, stay tuned, there's some big things coming and there are, but the it's almost as if the growth of the podcast is just so wonderful that Every time that I'm about ready to pull the trigger on something new, then we get more information or we have another idea. And so I think that at some point I just have to pull the trigger on what this new exciting information will be. Because it's going to be a way to just hear more, hear more of the people's voices, hear more actual interviews that with people, whether we, we have to slightly change the voice a little bit, the names. There's, there are a lot of people that are interested in coming and telling their story. I'm hearing from more of the therapists that are out there working in the field. So if you're a therapist and you are interested in talking about your story or talking about the populations that you work for, with or I'm even putting together a nice little group of therapists that we can possibly even do a little bit of a consultation, or we can help people find therapists in your area that that know more about these emotional immaturity or narcissistic traits and tendencies. So we're creating something big. And I'm so grateful for those of you who are listening and those of you who are sharing the episodes and those of you who are sharing your stories. Again, they they are being heard and they're going to make a difference. That episode last week where I shared a woman's story, that was phenomenal. And the the amount of feedback there. Every week I get these emails that just say, I, they would say that the things I would say make it feel like I'm in their I have a camera in their room or following them around. But when we hear your stories, when people hear your stories, that is when people really feel heard. And I could really tell that last week as I shared the woman's experience through email. I got an email, I just grabbed one of the latest ones here and it just said I've just started listening to your podcast and I just have to tell you, thank you. I thought for the longest time that I was the one with the issues and listening to you tell these stories and the data that you've brought. Has opened my eyes so much. I'm looking forward to your podcast on parenting with a narcissist. Boy, we've got a lot going or a lot planned there. She said, my ex used to used to and still sometimes tells me that I'm the one that I'm being a martyr when he's the one that hurt me. He had stepped out of the marriage and then would always say that it was because of her because and because of her behavior that he had to, quote, keep his options open. Now, eventually he did leave. But she said after listening, she said that I've realized that he still has this hold on me, though we're not together. And then he can use the kids to for leverage or to try to control her. That breaks my heart. And that's what we're going to start talking about here in the upcoming episodes. She said, I'm currently listening to the the podcast Death by a Thousand Cuts. And she said, I can totally relate the little things that have been said and done have hurt the most. So thank you. I'm going to keep listening. And I love this part. She said, I'm going to become stronger and I'm going to help my kids through this. And if that isn't just a, a strength, a voice of strength, I don't know what it is. So the reason I grabbed that one is because I appreciate her saying that listening to the stories and the data have opened her eyes so much. So today, we're going big. We're going with stories. We're going with data. And and all that is uh, coming up. Let me bring on my good friend, Nate. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Nate Christensen. Tony Overway. I, I want to say welcome to the virtual couch because you are the <laughs> four-time visitor. But welcome to Waking Up the Narcissism. Thank you.
1: Happy to be here. Feels the same, though. It
0: does. (laughs) Admittedly, we're in the same. My office and Nate is here. I just gave you, and this is one of the first times I recorded the intro before you came in. Because usually I'm saying, and I'm sure I gave you a wonderful intro, but I know I did. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and it is interesting. It's, one might assume that a lot of the, there's crossover. I think there's a lot of crossover from virtual couch audience to waking up to narcissism. But the waking up to narcissism audience, I can already tell by the demographics and the statistics that it is a, it's a whole different audience. So there are a lot of people that do not know who you are. Okay. And, and I build you as, uh, so you are an associate professional clinical counselor. Yes. I went through the concept of that formerly that was known as an intern. I even talked about you need to get 3,000 hours. And I, I am your clinical supervisor. I feel like we can insert some jokes there. <laughs> and, and so tell people about you, as much of your background as you want to
1: share. Okay. Okay. So I... Because I'm an associate, I'm a newer therapist. I got my master's degree in counseling from Northwestern University in twenty twenty and graciously agreed to to have me come in and and work under your supervision, which has been amazing and I've learned a ton and it's been just super awesome. I guess my background in mental health starts with myself. Yeah. So when I was younger I noticed something was a little off, like it just I didn't feel right, and as I aged, I did the normal things, but maybe at a little bit of a different level as other people. I was a lot more introverted and reserved, and, and I didn't necessarily connect to people all that well in, in, in many instances. And when I was 21, 22, I really had some problems. So I went and saw a psychologist and then a psychiatrist, and I was diagnosed with uh, major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder. And and so ever since then, I've been kind of managing those things. And then a few years ago, I was diagnosed with ADHD. I also have a pretty lengthy addiction history, about 20 plus years. So those are all my personal experiences. And as I've learned how to deal with those, because I, I don't really see them as things that you... Like cure per se, Mm. but you manage and and it's a lifelong journey. Through working with amazing therapists and clinicians and doctors, I just felt like I really wanted to be in this field because I was so grateful for what they did and I wanted to help people in that kind of way. So here I am. And and, and I really, it's not just because you are,
0: it sounds sounds so funny to say, and my associate, Mm -hmm. um, but you're really good at what you do. And I really feel like if and I know this is the Waking Up the Narcissism podcast, but you have your passion. You found the uh, things that really matter. You were in finance or insurance before?
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So my undergraduate degree was in finance and risk management. And then, and it was fine. And I loved the people that I worked with and I enjoyed what I did. But it just, I think you've communicated, you kind of felt like uh-huh. you just wanted something more. Yeah. And
0: I think that's even, we're going to, we've got so much to get through today, but. Even people that are going through or, or untangling themselves from a narcissistic trauma bond often say, OK, I don't even know who I am or I've lost my sense of self. So I do feel like although you and I weren't in those situations, the narcissistic trauma bonds per se, but that concept of not really understanding that there is hope out there when you find really your sense of self or value based goals or and you start taking action on them, that uh, it can be a pretty amazing thing.
1: Yeah, it it is interesting how you start to view yourself a little differently. So for me, I've always thought I was very introverted. And as I got healthy and and my anxiety started to decrease and my depression started to become much more manageable, I found that I was actually more. I'm I'm not going to say I'm extroverted, but I was more extroverted than I thought I was. Okay, These traits that when you're in your normal state. Normal, your highest functioning state. Yeah. Like some of these traits start to change within us. Well, and and I'm just going to say this quick, and then we've got so much good stuff to
0: dive into. But I did an episode a few weeks ago where I talked about normal, and the author called it normal, healthy narcissism. And I think I've shared with you that I know that can sound like an oxymoron. So I like to say normal, healthy ego. And that is a realistic sense of positive self-regard that's based on a person's actual accomplishments. So it's relatively stable because the person has assimilated into their self-image the successes that came as a result of their actual hard work to overcome real-life obstacles. So because it's based on real achievements, normal, healthy, and I will insert ego, Mm -hmm. is relatively impervious to the minor slights and setbacks we all experience as we go through life. Uh, Normal, healthy ego causes us to care about ourselves, do things that are in our self-interest, and is associated with genuine self-respect. Is something inside of us. And so I really feel like even as people are coming out of uh, unhealthy relationships, that it is so important that they have they know they have been through things and they've had to listen to podcasts. They've had to listen to books. They've had to go to counseling to then truly know that, no, I am not crazy. I recognize gaslighting. I have this real sense of self. And that is all to set up the pathological defense of narcissism, which I feel like I absolutely connected with when I wasn't doing something that was in alignment with my passion or goals or sense of pathological defensive narcissism says it's a defense against feelings of inferiority. So the person dons a mask of arrogant superiority in an attempt to convince the world that he or she is special. Inside the person feels very insecure about their actual self-worth and this uh, facade of superiority is so thin it's like a helium balloon. One small pinprick will deflate it. So this makes the person hypersensitive to minor slights that somebody with healthy ego would not even notice. Instead, somebody with this type of defensive narcissism is easily wounded, frequently takes any form of disagreement, as serious criticism, and then will lash out and devalue anyone they think is disagreeing with them. They're constantly on guard trying to protect their status. So pathological narcissism can be thought as a protective armor on the outside of somebody. So I don't know if that's a nice way to segue into some of the data that we're going to talk about today.
1: Yeah, it is. And, and I'd like to point out. Like to me, and and we've talked about attachment. I don't know how much you've talked about oh, that in this. No, it's a
0: great point. Please go find Nate's
1: episode that we did talk about attachment on the virtual couch. But we should probably have you back down the road to talk about that here. But go ahead. Yeah. So to me, I when I was doing research and I was running into things like that, I was like, holy oh, cow, that sounds like such a disorganized attachment style. Because on the one hand, you're very avoidant of these emotions, and you're putting up such a, a facade to to keep them at bay. But on the other hand, you're very anxious. And anxiety is closely associated with aggression. Yeah. So it's a part of our brain called the amygdala, and our amygdala is like our—it does a lot of things, but it, it seems to regulate fear and anxiety, and it's again closely associated with aggression. So you can see that that disorganized swinging between, like this grandiose, "I'm fine, everything's great," and yeah. then when that's challenged, back into the anxious holy cow, what are you doing? I, there's no, I'm not going to let you do this, and now I'm angry. So I, that was the first time that I really considered that because I always recognized narcissism as, as grandiose right. yeah. and avoidant. And now, I, after reading some of these things, I'm starting to see a, a lot more disorganized where they'll shift, they'll swing between those two styles. Say, and I feel like I'm so like I'm beaming. I'm the proud dad. It's like,
0: <laughs> uh, uh, Ladies and gentlemen, That is why Nate Christensen is here, because that does make sense of that part with the the amygdala. And you've got that anxiety and aggression. Mm -hmm. And so that it is wild when sometimes and the people that most of the people listening to this are in the midst of these waking up to narcissistic relationships with whether it's spouse or parent or child or employer or. And and I have people that are starting to write that are saying they're waking up to their own narcissism, which I so appreciate. And so that's where I feel like being aware of that Trying to at some point you can almost get to that empathy of seeing them as this insecure anxious person that has unhealthy coping skills so they need to lash out because of that fear of taking ownership or accountability of of their actions okay so Nate, the thing that I've already built you up in the intro is talking about the neurobiology and, yes. and so let us let's start with the brain okay
1: bless it's. Pink Squishy Heart. Yeah. Yes. So for anybody that's interested, I'll do the best I can to give synopsis of like several journal articles. But if anybody just wants to look at something themselves, I found an incredible article that I really thought I should share with the audience. Okay. It's called Can Neuroscience Help to Understand Narcissism? A Systematic Review of an Emerging Field. And it's by, I'm going to probably butcher these names, Jouk and Kansk. I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Yeah, I'll do that. It was published May 2021. They oh. looked at dozens of articles that are studying narcissists, and there was over 100 pages. It was a wow. very large journal article. It was very in-depth. And and so I wouldn't say the bulk of this comes from this, but I pulled more from that than any other article. So if anybody wants to be able to like, okay, well, where did he get that? Yeah, I'd check that one out because that it, it was really, really well done. Okay. No, I appreciate that. So we'll go ahead and give that to you guys. Now we're on to the neuroscience. Okay. Okay. And then people that are listening, just hang in here. If we get a little nerdy, Nate does
0: an amazing job of explaining things. And I know that there are times where some things just start to go over my head and then I will resort to my secondary emotion of humor. Yes. So be prepared for that, but
1: we've got a lot to cover. So I'm going to talk about four brain structures that are all important in this. And I will, after that, probably mostly refer to two because I do want to keep this simple. Like, okay. this is not a neurology class, and most of us don't have training in high tech neurology. Yeah. And so the, the, I don't want to lose people. as you just mentioned. So the first area that we're going to talk about that's really important, when we look at MRI and fMRI brain scans of people with narcissistic personality disorder and those without. And the fMRI are when they throw, inject the dye, and you're watching things real time, right? There are these four areas that seem to be functioning a little bit differently within narcissists. And the first is the insula. Now, specifically, it seems like the anterior insular cortex is affected, but I just put insula generally because there were other little things that that didn't fall under the anterior insula. Okay. So just what that does that pertains to what we're talking about, because each of these brain regions do a lot of things. I'm not going to talk about everything they do because some of it doesn't necessarily pertain to what we're talking about. So this is our disgust center. So okay. th- this regulates disgust. And human beings disgust... It's both physical and moral slash social. So we can, I'll give you an example. The insula is interesting because if you decide you want to become, say, really neat and clean. Okay. So you're always wearing nice clothes and you're always done up really well and your car is clean and your house is clean. Your insula starts to now label everything as clean as good. Ah. And you can see now what the opposite of that is. Wow. Dirty is bad. Yeah. And so what we see is the insula is part of that like idea of good, bad, which is related to disgust. Okay. So we're like, oh, I feel good about myself. I look great that person looks filthy and it's grossing me out. So, so if somebody, this is
0: interesting. So if someone grew up, I'm trying to even think of an example, I don't know, of eating some meal and to them that
1: was good. And to someone else, it's that's the physical part of it. Okay. And the insula is very powerful. So in one case, I think I was watching a video where a woman was talking about the insula professor and someone in the class had said, she asked if anyone had ever had food poisoning and someone raised her hand and she said, Do you know, it was and the person said, I have no idea, but I know where it happened. And I've never been back since. And that was A decade ago. Wow! So it's a really—it's meant to keep us alive, the physical part of it. If you get food poisoning, you could die. So that's funny. I feel like anybody
0: listening right now, I'm immediately thinking of the Tony Romas in Anaheim, (laughs) across the street from Disneyland. That was a rough night with some ribs, and I have not had any in 20 years. Right, and and
1: that's exactly that's a perfect example (laughs) of, of the insulin. No offense, Tony Romas. I'm sure that the ribs are. Great ninety nine point nine percent of the time. That's but
0: right. And it might on. have been I, I was uh,
1: went on two. And years it easily could've writes. been something else, exactly. right? But that's but the last look at how your brain remember. works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right. So that's our disgust center. It's also believed to be an important part of our ability to feel empathy. So empathy mm-hmm. is our ability to look at someone else, connect with what emotion they're feeling, and and likewise mimic that emotion within ourselves. And then also interoception. And I'll define this word. Because it sounds like a great movie. <laughs> I would see that. Yeah, yeah. So interoception is the ability to perceive sensations inside of our own body. Okay. So like for someone that's feeling a lot of anxiety and they feel it in their gut or in oh. their their shoulders or something, they can feel that sensation and understand what they're feeling. So that's interoception. So the insula is a big part of one of the big problem areas with when you're dealing with people with narcissistic personality disorder. The next is the cingulate cortex, particularly the anterior cingulate cortex. Anterior just means like front. Okay. So if if someone's talking about the brain, anteriors, front, posteriors, back, and then it has like side to side. Okay. Dorsal and ventral. Sorry, that's probably way more than we need to know. So the anterior cingulate cortex is particularly wired to help us with empathy so that's already a repeat cuz empathy we uh-huh. saw in insula impulse control which you and I know yeah. with ADHD you see it with little kids they're just they're not even thinking they're just like get an urge action I'm trying
0: to bring myself to great awareness to not reach in my fridge while you're talking and get a piece <laughs> of candy for real this is interesting
1: And then it's also connected with emotion and and also decision making okay. we can already see that there's some overlap there in the empathy Area, So there's also two frontal cortical regions. One is called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And that area is executive functioning, like working memory and selective attention. Okay. So attention would be, okay, where are we going to focus what we're looking at or what we're doing or what we're thinking about? And then, interestingly enough, this area is the brain is also highly associated with OCD. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So... That brings us to our last area, the ventral medial prefrontal cortex. This area processes risk and fear. It also is our moral and ethical decision-making. So our ideas of right and wrong are determined housed in this area. And then it's also the regulation of emotion. So I, I really feel like the important parts to all of this is attention, emotion, empathy. Okay. So that's where we see like some overlap, and I think those are all really important to conceptualize what is happening for narcissists in the brain. Okay. Attention, emotion, and empathy. Yeah. Okay. So attention, emotions, and empathy. Why does that matter with narcissists? So the attention, I'm going to put to the side because we're going to get to that in a minute. Okay. But emotions... You probably talked a lot about. Yes. Like, these people are trying to avoid uncomfortable emotions. Yeah. They're fine with happy, cheerful... Yeah, or so if you say anything that goes against... Uh,
0: even to say no, or even to question them, then, yeah, now you've uh, they go right to shame. And so then that is not a, a good emotion. Mm-hmm. And now they're going to lash out to protect their
1: fragile egos. Right. And, and ultimately, they don't have the skills. They have okay. not developed the skills to deal with emotions. So they just put the wall up and... I don't know how to deal with that. So, now this is an interesting thing that I've been thinking about and and maybe you've already discussed it, like how the integration of shadow could come into play with our inability to look at certain emotions that might be truths about us that we don't want to accept. So I haven't yet. Okay. But... You just solidified another appearance on waking
0: up the narcissist. <laughs> okay. So where I've typically gone with that is the that you look at the childhood abandonment or attachment, or so then if someone was never modeled mm-hmm. uh, how to deal with emotion, mm-hmm. and that can even be done. I was talking with someone earlier today, even that I thought was interesting, because we even want to almost vilify the parents that created the narcissist, but it can be if someone just dismisses or or just jumps right past emotion or hey don't even worry about it or it's okay or you know we we shouldn't really think about it that way or you mean you're dismissing being able to process emotion for your your kids so it's important to learn how to teach your kids to feel and and emote that's a, a normal
1: part of growing up right yeah Yeah, and I have a theory, and and we'll see whether or not it it bears out, which is that older people, older generations, raise children to be a little bit more avoidant of emotion. Mm -hmm. And so maybe we might see more grandiose narcissists be older, and maybe some younger narcissists maybe might tend to be a little bit more vulnerable. I, and I totally agree. And I will
0: often call that, uh, I just call that generational narcissism. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I like that.
1: This will bring us to uh, a really cool article that I found that was written. And let's see, it was July 2021 out of Austria. And so this journal article was looking at narcissism and comparing it to cocaine addiction. Wow. Yeah. Which is is interesting. Now, our addiction circuits... Seem to be relatively stable. Talk so, about that because when you and I were talking about this earlier in the week, I I had never heard narcissism and addiction in the same sentence. Okay, so our addiction circuits do seem to be kind of a circuit, as in there, it's a, it's almost like. Take one addiction out, insert another one, and you see the same types of problems in most of the same brain regions. I've often joked that uh, my ultra running happens to be
0: a socially acceptable addiction. Mm -hmm. But when I don't run for a day or two, I'm
1: shorter, fatter, balder, a worse husband, father, and therapist. Right. Now, the interesting distinction with that is when you look at, say, something like cocaine, which is going to drop an insane amount of dopamine. Running, you're going to get your runners high But the difference between those two is massive. Yes. So, what you're experiencing is a lot more of a healthy addictive experience versus yes. a chemical <laughs> a very unhealthy chemical experience for people.
0: But when we've talked about even you and I run uh, the men's group which is we love doing and so when you're talking about people that turn to things like pornography as a coping mechanism so then where, where would that dopamine bump fit above running but below
1: cocaine in a sense? That's a good question so the thing with that is is that's conceptualizing dopamine as a one time thing Okay, and the thing with pornography is the dopamine can actually keep coming Mm. so that's why pornography is attractive to people that are looking for a dopamine hit dopamine is anticipatory so it's like oh this is what's coming and so it's trying to get you to keep doing this until it gets what it wants which is eventual orgasm So what you see is you're clicking on something, and you're like, oh, this is really exciting. But then you can click on something else, and the excitement goes back up. So you're getting dopamine hits over Mm. and over and over and over in a long period of time. So with cocaine, you might snort some cocaine, and and then you get that big dopamine hit. It's massive, and then eventually it comes down, and then you might do some more. But the time period between those experiences could be much larger versus sitting at a computer desk and clicking on something, and then five minutes later clicking on something else, and it's just... So 2021 journal article out of Austria, they're looking at cocaine addiction and, they're, and they did say later in the article, you could put other things in there besides cocaine addiction because the addictive circuits, again, are take one out, addiction out, put another in. Okay. So it's a similar pathway. But they just went with cocaine because we have a lot of research on it. And then when they look at narcissism, they're seeing similar brain regions that are affected. Wow. So the insula. The cortex, some of the areas of the prefrontal cortex. Again, the insula and the cingulate cortex are kind of the areas I want to focus on today because I don't want to overwhelm people with with too much information and lose everybody. So they're seeing similarities in the brain region that are affected by cocaine users and people that are narcissists and. I mentioned this earlier, over 40% of people with narcissistic personality disorder also have a diagnosed substance use disorder. Which I, I had no idea. I had not heard that. Yeah, it's pretty high. Yeah. Uh, and I'd be curious about if there were behavior, addictive behaviors that some are engaging in. It's harder sometimes to hide drug addiction from people Behavior addiction sometimes can be a little bit easier to hide. I don't know if that's always the case. But I think from the work that we both do, I think that is where the things like
0: pornography or people that are stepping out and having extramarital affairs or we see a lot of that Mm -hmm. and that can be hidden.
1: Right. Yeah. So as far as how many people are narcissists that are also addicts, the number could be much higher than that even. So what the article also focused on besides those brain regions was serotonin. And there's something interesting here. So we know that cocaine addicts have reduced serotonin levels. That's probably related to the fact that the dopamine is spiking massively, and dopamine and serotonin have kind of an inverse relationship. Dopamine goes up, serotonin seems to go down. Mm. That's That's what we tend to see in the body. So what does that mean for the narcissist? Well, they don't necessarily have this massive dopamine spike because they're not putting cocaine in their body, but... They do have a cortisol spike, interestingly enough. So So we're back to that anxiety or that? Right, right. Now, cortisol does something interesting to our body. Cortisol actually causes, we have these reuptake vacuums in between our nerve endings. So if you were to take an antidepressant like, say, Zoloft, it's a serotonin uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Basically, what it's doing is these little vacuums that are sucking up serotonin in, in between our nerve endings are getting... Shut off what cortisol does is it turns these little vacuums on high oh so it is like suck it's like turning your vacuum on superpower and it is pulling all the cor- all the serotonin out of your nerve endings so if you're low in serotonin the doctor gives you some medication it's to kind of allow the serotonin to just kind of hang out in between your nerve endings and that might help facilitate communication between your nerves, which is believed to be helpful for people that are depressed okay if you are a narcissist and you have higher levels of cortisol, your serotonin is being pulled out of your nerve endings. And it could look like or function like you have low serotonin. Which what, would? Which would. Serotonin is believed to be the principal trans, a neurotransmitter used in our ability to empathize with others. Whoa, okay. Well, so, I did not see that coming.
0: Yeah. Twist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, dopamine gets all the stage time. But right. Now, right. Okay, so then you're saying that even... So I was already locked into that when people are taking an antidepressant. But you're just saying our normal levels of serotonin, which have to do with empathy, mm-hmm. and so then if, uh, if and cortisol then in essence then robs the the brain of that serotonin. And what's fascinating then, if you go back to the Bessel van der Kolk's "The Body Keeps the Score," yeah. he says the neurons that wire together fire together, mm-hmm. and talks about that. There's that concept where if somebody grew up in a home where there was a lot of violence or anger or elevated speaking that then their cortisol levels are going to form almost like this baseline high, which then I'm having an aha moment where then, and again, we're just a couple of guys talking about this. We we don't have lab coats on. I have no stethoscope because I'm feeling like I'm about to solve all the world's problems (laughs) with what you just said. But then if that would make even more sense of that if that baseline cortisol is high from childhood, because there was, uh, whether it was emotional uh, abuse or abandonment neglect, or, or, yeah, neglect, any of those things, anger, that then the kid is actually incredibly anxious because, and, and that goes even to when we talk about gaslighting as a childhood defense mechanism. Because then if, if I am living in this survival state and if I get something wrong, I'm going to get, I'm going to get beat. Right. I, I'm going to get, I'm not going to get dinner. I'm going to get punished. Then I will not be wrong. Right. I will gaslight like crazy. And so then that anxiety, the cortisol is going to be, man, that is
1: wild, man. Yeah, it is. And it's interesting kind of how how the evolution of the narcissist. There was one particular study where they looked at, Like teen boys that are identified as high in narcissism. Right, I would say every teenage boy is a narcissist. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so you can imagine how much of a narcissist you have to be if you're identified as being high in narcissism, like more so than your peers. Yes. So they have this competitive game, and then it appears that they're playing with other people, but the other people are actually just computer simulations. And so what they found was when the boys are playing this game, the computer simulation at one point starts to exclude them. So, the narcissist is now being excluded, and they know they're being excluded, and they think it's by other people. So, it simulates a social kind wow. of experiment. And what they found was the boys would lash out verbally. They were looking at their brain, and the the anterior cingulate cortex and the insula. And I failed to mention this, this is a really important part of this. That is also our pain processing. So, and that's where we talk about emotional pain and physical mm-hmm. pain are right in the same spot, right? Right. right. So their pain processing center lights up. They get frustrated. They lash out at who they think are other people, probably at a computer screen. And then they test their saliva. Uh Their cortisol's through the roof. Wow. Okay. So what we're going, you can see in that kind of experience, that's an anxious like response. And so somewhere along the line, they stop becoming anxious they stop responding in that kind of way and they shut off emotion and now we're in anger. Well, no, not even. No, they're not angry. The anxious person is angry. He's angry. Right. So what happens when all that emotion is shut off? Well, that's where the narcissist really starts to develop this mask. Okay. So I'm not going to emotion. Emotion is ah. pain. I don't like feeling angry and upset and my cortisol, you know, people don't like feeling in fight or flight. It's a, it's uncomfortable bodily sensation. So their their the insula remember interoception, yes, okay, that interoception piece starts they they start ignoring it, so where the pain is, where the uncomfortableness is, right, okay, so now wow. their 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 insula is not working as as well as it could be because you're communicating to your brain. this is what happens with addicts, right we get conditioned to. To lie, to be self-centered, and to do all these things in order to maintain our addiction. Yeah. And that starts to turn things off in our brain that wants us to be honest and connect with people. And so now our brain, again, which is plastic. Behavior shapes part of what we see in the brain. Yeah. Neurons. Wire together, fire together. Right. So now these neurons are not wired together and not firing together. So we have these parts of our brains that are not functioning as you would expect in someone that has actually progressed and grown. Wow. And then the,
0: the longer or the more that someone lives in that state or that is their go-to behavior, right. then the good old brain likes patterns mm-hmm. and it likes repetition because it thinks it
1: will use less electrical activity. So then it starts to say, Oh, this is what we do. Right. Okay. And, th- and that's that whole, our, our brain is a computer and has limited memory, and it just wants to conserve as much as possible because at some point a lion's going to chase you, and you better be ready. Yeah. And which again, can't. I always say is it's a fault. I
0: mean, it's a false premise, mm-hmm. and that's where we think our brain is so smart, mm-hmm. but not so much. No, it, it is just simply a don't get killed device. Yeah. All of this is coming from a survival mechanism. Right.
1: Yeah. Right. Wow. So that. That really is, in essence, a lot to do with that 2021 narcissism study. And I want to get to what they proposed at the end of the study, which I thought was fascinating. Okay. So what, what they said is, hey, look, if you look at all of these brain regions that are affected by narcissism and you compare it to the brain regions affected by addiction, particularly cocaine addiction, is it out of bounds or could we conceptualize narcissism? as an addiction to self-esteem. Wow. Okay. Talk about that. When I read that, I, I I thought that's very interesting because now all of a sudden as someone that is sober, but but been an addict for a long time. That kind of puts you in the same category. They have a behavior addiction. I had behavioral addictions and some substance addictions, but we're all in the same boat, right? Yeah. At that point. Oh, absolutely. And this is where I
0: talk about, yeah, every, and, and when everyone, when you frame it as emotional immaturity as well, and... Every kid doesn't even know, have a sense of self. So they need that external validation to even, that's normal at the beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, if I don't know who I am, then I'm going to get my validation from others. So if they, if my parents are happy, then I'm awesome. If my parents are sad, then I must be bad. And that's just the way that we show up until we realize that we aren't being ourselves or, and we then have to go find what really matters to us. Yeah. I really am wowing
1: and being blown away. Because, okay. Um, well, I got more for you. Okay. <laughs> okay. Keep going. All right. So I want to talk now about the salience network. Okay. So we got two parts. So we got the, what
0: are the networks? we got Disney, um, ABC, NBC, <laughs> the salient network. I'm a big fan of their shows. <laughs>
1: yeah. So we have the CEN central executive network. Exactly. Okay. Yep. So we have the central executive network and then the default mode network and the default mode network. Now, why do these matter? So our salience network is a
0: switch. Okay. When so you were telling me this in our warm-up conversations earlier in the week, this switch concept blew my mind.
1: Yeah. Okay. So the salience network is comprised of, of many parts of the brain. But can you guess two of the very important parts of the salience network, which we've talked about? <laughs> the, oh, the parts of the insula? Uh-huh. The insula and the singular cingulate cortex. cortex. Okay. So very important to the salience two. network. Yes, to the sense Network. So well, what does that do? What does that do? So our default mode network is our ability to look at your, ourselves. Yeah. And it's supposed to give us the opportunity to evaluate and to reflect and to do all of these things about what might I need to, to do to change to improve. Like it's In essence, it's, accountability, taking ownership for things. That's what it's supposed to be. Yeah. That's what it's supposed that's to be. That's your default mode network. Right, right. So then we have our our central um, executive network. Okay. That is basically if we want to pursue something, then that would be connected with that. This is probably an oversimplification, but it's basically internal-external. Okay. So there seems to be a problem with the switch. The switch only goes one direction or the other. You can't have both. That's just the way the brain works. The brain is very interesting because it's super complex, but in some ways it's very, very simple. Our brain is an all or nothing, black or white, like good or bad. Yeah, cognitive distortions. Right. We have a hard time with the gray or the ambiguity. Right. The gray requires a lot more brain power, so our brain Uh, wants to make it simple and just this or that. Yeah. That's what our brain wants to do. Okay. So in this sense, we have one network or the other, the interior or the exterior. Okay. The problem, (laughs) that the switch appears to be broken with people that are experiencing narcissism. They're always switched to internal. Okay, so what is that? You would expect for someone that is is the networks operating the way it's supposed to that they would be able to be self-reflective and they'd be able to think about past experiences. And they, there's a lot of potential positives. The problem is because of the narcissistic tendencies where they've cut off negative emotion, it becomes all positive about themselves. <laughs> they can't stop thinking about themselves you just nailed it. And I am now thinking of myself as I interrupt you,
0: but I feel like in my own waking up to my own narcissism, I have realized so many times where I will just, Cut into a story, which I am literally doing now because I, yeah, because I, I got a great point I can make right here. <laughs> well, I was done, so you're. I know. We <laughs> I mean, I mean, were saying like uh, if I'm talking with friends, all of a sudden, oh no, I've got a better story. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is where that one up comes mm-hmm. from. And even when I see it in sessions, I've been talking about this quite a bit lately. The difference in a you know, let's just say a normal or healthy couples situ- session is they don't know what they don't know, and so they're coming in and they're willing to. To, to listen or hear tools and to the narcissist, I don't know if you've seen this yet in the couple stuff, but it's, I now realize they aren't even listening to mm-hmm. my tools and they're okay. Uh, when you're done, old man, let me just tell you how bad she is. And when you hear this, cause I'm special, mm-hmm. you may not know that yet, but so my situation is so special that you won't even need these tools. Right. It makes so much
1: sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's really an interesting way to conceptualize a brain that's, it's in this defensive mm-hmm. mode. It doesn't need the tools. It has the tools. The it's tools right. are, I ignore this. This person keeps bringing it to me, and i that's not helping. Like, that's no, not and working. I, and matter of fact, I need to let them know mm-hmm. that they don't even understand what they're doing. Right.
0: I know what they're doing. And I hear that so often when the person, he thinks that this is what
1: he really thinks. He thinks this is who he is. He thinks this is what he believes. So, i got to ask you. I don't know if you've run across this. I was pretty fascinated when I found it. So... Interesting studies: if you take somebody's face and you enhance it, both directions make it uglier and more beautiful, most people will pick out a more beautiful version of their face and identify it as their actual face. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. So we all have a tendency to think better about ourselves than we actually are. Here's the irony. Okay. (laughs) If you have other people rate people generally on attractiveness and intelligence, narcissists. By other people's measures, score higher. They're more attractive and, oh. and perceived as more attractive and more intelligent than other people. Why is that? The belief is is that narcissists put emphasis on the exterior okay. because if they have to go on the inside and oh. the inside matters, that's going to put them in a place where they have to do self-evaluation and they don't want to do that. And that, boy, now we get back to that whole concept of shadow, is that
0: if they let somebody in then they are so afraid that someone will find out that mm-hmm. they are not. That goes back to that, that they are not special, that right. they are in, they're insecure. So they project this confidence, which mm-hmm. is, yeah. And, that's, and then that becomes part of the love bombing or, or whatever that looks like. Shameless plug. And I thought you were going a different direction with that because the shameless plug is my, I was on a TV show called uh, Family Rules. Okay. And, and I recorded it over the summer and it just came out last weekend. I'm watching that. I look horrible. <laughs> I could not believe that. So camera that adds mean, 10 pounds. Oh, weight added about
1: 20. So does that mean I'm not a narcissist? I mean, if you yeah. look at what the normal population does, people pick out the best, like a better looking version of their face and say, that's my face. Yeah. Well, they definitely must've altered this because it looked horrible.
0: <laughs> yeah. So what I think is so interesting, and I hope that people that are listening are having these similar aha moments where you just, it, things just start to, to resonate or make sense. And so what, Well, actually, I think we have this on the outline. I was going to say, what does one do? Because I feel like I get these ahas. And I think one of the most difficult things is then I want to now share this with the narcissist of the world so that they will then say, oh, man, okay, thank you. But
1: we just spoke to the fact that they aren't hearing that because. Yeah. So I have a theory and I just happened to stumble across it yesterday. And I do know that there are some people that 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 treat narcissism this way. I actually looked it up and it turns out there are clinicians that treat narcissism in this way. Is that what you're getting at? I want to make sure I understand. I I am. And it's
0: interesting because even as a clinician who works with narcissists, who Mm -hmm. finally say, fine, maybe I'm a narcissist. I'm already becoming defensive of, in a a loving way, of course, (laughs) that trying to treat them is almost them saying, okay, I can adapt to this mask of treatment. And I think that can be such a difficult thing versus what I call the unicorn breakthrough, where then you will have people that it does take a lot of work to get to a place of more of an awareness. And and even before we go here, because I think I know where we're going. Talk about the narcissist on a spectrum. When you were talking about that on Wednesday, that we often look at the vulnerable narcissist, and it's almost like, well, at least they're not the grandiose narcissist.
1: So one of the papers that I looked at basically said the idea that a person is one or the other is probably inaccurate. What we, the, probably the best way to conceptualize narcissism is that we're on this spectrum that's fluid and we're moving between grandiose and vulnerable. And they did acknowledge that there were, there did appear to be some people that were, they almost always looked grandiose. Yeah. But they said based on what we know about narcissism, like they're getting these sensations, these anxious sensations, of cortisol is rising. So their body is telling them, hey, there's a problem here that they're ignoring. And so, yeah, I guess that's more avoidant, grandiose, but they know that the signals are there. So there, there is a vulnerable piece to, to everyone that's experiencing it. Well,
0: and why I appreciate that is because I do become fascinated and sometimes I feel like I over- swing when someone will be in my office and they'll say, but then and I'm just gonna use the the guy as the narcissist in the scenario, but then I really feel like th- he got that, whatever that was. Then I feel like there was a moment where no, this one I it was different. Mm-hmm. And and I used to regularly say, Okay, I hear you, but what's the angle? Right. Is that just the mask? But I feel like what you're what you're saying or maybe what you've read is that at some point there can be moments where when the stars align and somewhere on the spectrum where someone is going to tap into this Man, I don't like the way this feels. And maybe I'm yeah. not going to just lash out immediately.
1: But then were we we're saying, though, that then, but that, that may be fleeting? Maybe. One of the hallmarks of narcissism, perhaps the hallmark of narcissism, is a lack of empathy. And that doesn't mean that they're incapable of empathy. It just means that it's, you see it in really small bits and pieces. Yeah. And most of the time they're in this other state where they're avoid emotion. I, I, I do feel like it's important to point out something. I know we're running short on time, which is the idea of alexithymia. Oh, yes. So alexithymia, by definition, is the inability to recognize or describe one's emotions. People with narcissism, with NPD, are very high in alexithymia, which it, it for us, it's probably comparable to a, a kid. Like kids come in... They don't necessarily know how to identify emotions. They don't necessarily have the language for it. That's what you see in people that are high in narcissism. And so one of the theories is that narcissists can't even identify their own emotions. How are they supposed to identify other people's emotions? So the lack of empathy is not necessarily coming from a place where they don't want to. But they may not even have the ability to. And not even know
0: that they don't. Right. So it's fascinating you're saying this. I'm working on uh, the next round of the Magnetic Marriage course with my friend Preston. And we were looking at adding a module that has this concept of global beliefs and then uh, personal beliefs. And the idea is that just having somebody go through, it's almost like the first thing that comes in your mind. Men are. Women are. Work is. Kids are. And the thought is that if you have this global belief, if it's uh, men are... Jerks, mm-hmm. then you're probably
1: going into situations just looking for their jerkness. Well, that's the filter that all the information comes through, right? Yeah. You see a man, he does something, men are jerks. I'm going to now apply meaning to what just happened based on the idea that men are jerks. Yeah. There's a whole spectrum of what this could mean, but it's going to be somewhere on the negative side yeah. right, because of that filter. Absolutely. And so, what I, after Preston and I had
0: talked about this one day, it just hit me that I really wondered what that looked like with emotional immaturity or narcissistic traits or tendencies. And so I, I field tested a little bit and where it was interesting where one person, let's just say I said, men are, and he said, what's the context? <laughs> and I said, I just, what is your global belief around that? And he mm-hmm. said, but I need to know, what are we talking about? Or am I at work? Am I, is my wife around? Is my, and I really felt like that was giving me my answer. Interesting. Yeah. And so we tried a couple more and then he just said, this is dumb. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I really thought, wow, I think there's something there. Of it's no, I don't know which mask
1: to put on. Got a whole backpack full of them here. It helped me out. So I know. Although I have to admit, when you said, you asked him, men are, and then asked him to give a word. Yeah. I, I was like, I, I don't know what I would say. Well, like, I, my initial reaction was men. Yeah. Men are men. Okay. And, and that's what's
0: funny. When Preston did that on me, I hesitated as well. Mm-hmm. And then when I was thinking about this later, I thought, okay, there's my waking up to my narcissism. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Cause I really, yeah. cause literally on the virtual couch a little while ago, I did an episode on context that I was, I really enjoyed. But I, then I, I realized though, I'm saying that context matters. With regard to empathy. Yeah. And I was talking about it from understanding someone else's situation. Yeah. That if I don't understand what they've been through, their their context is important. Right. So then I realized, okay, that, yeah, this one still is interesting. Yeah. And, and so it I think it's is. fair to have a pause. But then if you maybe, as, as Preston explained the
1: exercise to me, then I said, oh, okay, I'm in.
0: And then responded.
1: Yeah. And that's really interesting and can tell you a lot about people. But at the same time, I feel like I've increased in my openness. And Mm -hmm. so where I used to have very kind of solid categories about things and people, I've started to shatter those exteriors. And so now I have a hard time answering questions like that because I feel uncomfortable stating that there are certain parameters and that's just the truth <laughs> well and i appreciate it because i feel like yeah, here's two therapists talking You're about right. it too
0: because right. i because when we're looking at putting this into the course it's to just see where someone is mm-hmm. coming from to then bring awareness so right. that you can now is that a productive belief or right
1: thought? Yeah. right right yeah. so were you starting to talk as well about the, yeah. Okay. What can we do? Yes. All right. So if there's anybody listening that, that is, gee whiz, I'm a narcissist. My I somehow screwed my brain up, which is not the truth. Right, you right. know, the brain adapted to different circumstances. Yeah, and, and I hope people understood that part. It, it, it is the brain is a don't get killed device. Right. So
0: it's at any given moment. Bless your brain's heart. It, really right. thinks, it thought it was doing the
1: right thing. Right. So if you're sitting there feeling like I broke my brain, what can I do? Yesterday, I just happened just by chance to click on a video about some people that were doing brain scans on Tibetan monks. Mm-hmm. And and they were pointing out some things, which I just thought was fascinating. And so these neuroscientists said, when you really dig into these uh, these brain scans, what you see is people that meditate a lot... Have improved functioning in areas of the brain that are most closely related to attention and emotion, wow. and that's going to take us all the way back to the beginning, where attention in the narcissist is always on self, almost always on self. Mm-hmm. Okay, emotion they can't handle; they just want it away, just get away with. Unless if it's good, I'll have, I'll take it. Right. Give me all the good you got. Like negative, no way, that doesn't belong anywhere near me. Like They're like arachnophobia, and it's a spider, and they're running in the opposite direction. So it doesn't necessarily do with the empathy thing. I think the empathy is practiced and learned. But if they can't even recognize their own emotions, we can't expect empathy yet. But that's something that people can learn. So if you're like, okay, this will help someone with their attention, and it will help someone with their ability to control and monitor their emotions. That just answers two of the three big questions right there. And you can literally get off of this podcast when we're done, go to YouTube, find a guided meditation for 15 minutes and sit down and start it. And here's going to be the key don't think about yourself during that time and they'll have it that's why it's guided yeah I'll kind of help you with that you're not the worst person if you do it i did it you probably did it right i, I, I did and i've <laughs> talked about that on here too like okay. the importance of
0: it and and then what you're saying Nate, is in one session and you will cure your narcissism is that what
1: you're saying 15 minutes
0: and then it's done <laughs> i wish as a joke <laughs> I, wish. But, yeah, exactly. I wish but but i and and start that journey start the journey and then it's interesting because uh Shockingly, I want to make that about me. It but is about you.
1: I know, but, I, but the I mean, video was about you.
0: Oh, yeah. Tibetan monk. Thank you. He was bald. In, in, just exactly. like you. Thank you. And I <laughs> say Just go to Tibet. But when you were sharing that with me before we started recording, I really did. I, I, I almost uh, got touched because the mindfulness practice I started seven years ago using the app headspace has become such a part of me. And that we've talked about it on the virtual couch episode. That last one, we talked mm-hmm. about the Buddha brain. Mm-hmm. Please go listen to that episode. Nate was amazing. But and that one, I realized, man, if I had not started that, I worry that I would not have woken up to my own narcissism.
1: And that would be, uh, I'm noticing that would be a shame. I I don't know if there's any way, even if meditation was uncomfortable for me when I first started. Was it for you? Oh, absolutely. It's, it still is sometimes. Okay. I thought, this is nonsense. There's, I just don't see how this is going to help me. Yeah, The brain science is... I am dead wrong. <laughs> the brain science is 100% behind meditation. Yeah. So it will help. It can change your life. It will take time. It, I was about to say,
0: that's the thing that was, I was not, I thought I would have it down in a week. I, I've been doing it for so long. And honestly, a few weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, I had a client cancellation and I decided I would do a little bit of a meditation practice. And and it was, I only did a five minute one on Headspace, but the guy, Andy, happened to say that he's saying, okay, right now, whatever the thoughts are, whatever they're telling you, just recognize them and note them. And what my thoughts were screaming was, you know what, actually I have a lot of things to do and I really (laughs) don't need to do this. And it was such a battle in that moment Mm -hmm. because he's saying, and then just notice the thought and turn back to your breathing. And I was, I was saying, okay, but I really am good. I really Mm -hmm. don't need to be doing this now. And, but I hung in there and it just felt so empowering to make it through that five minutes. Yeah.
1: It's amazing. I love that. Okay. So Neuroplasticity of the brain is our friend. Yes. Yes. So the neuroplasticity is the idea that our brain can change over time and areas that maybe we weren't using, we can reconnect and start to use. And, you know, your brain is most plastic when you're a little baby. You're never going to have that again. Mm -hmm. But you're not stuck where you're at. We are living proof of that, Mm -hmm. you and I. Nate Christensen, where can people find you?
0: They can find your Working Change podcast.
1: Yeah, my wife and I do a podcast called Working Change, and it's small. We do it every other month. She's a graduate student. She's actually dealt with with some trauma dealing with a, a narcissist for many years herself. So this yeah. is very interesting to her. She's actually hoping to to work with people that have dealt with Which would be amazing. Yeah, so she's excited about that possibility. She will be doing uh, actually practicum starting in January. Wow. Yeah, it's going fast.
0: That is. And then uh, you, are you have room for some clients?
1: Yeah, so I do both counseling for people in California virtually and in person as well as coaching wherever people are from. Yeah, yeah. So, Nate Christensen counseling is my email address and sometimes I think there's so many ways that people can get that spelling wrong. It so it might be easier just, <laughs> just go through just my a, go yeah, to Tony. and
0: <laughs> if you want to reach out to Nate, feel free. And uh, we'll have you back on. So if this led to a lot of questions, if people had them, please continue to send those, send your stories. If you are someone that is listening to this, and I am getting more and more of the emails of the the people, men and women both, who say, this is hard to say, but I think that I may have these narcissistic Mm -hmm. traits or tendencies. That's where I just want to, I hope this episode even resonated and not from a holy cow, I'm broken, but from a this makes sense. Yeah. And, and that is such a place to start. And, and I hope that it makes sense for the people that are waking up to the narcissism in their relationships, even if it's allowing you to have, and I know it's hard when there's a lot of emotional abuse or physical abuse, sexual abuse, financial abuse, but just, I'm not saying that this is, so there you go, have more empathy, but maybe this is a way to help you disengage because I feel like whatever it can do to help you break from that trauma bond, and maybe some of that is hearing the depth of which this is located in the brain yeah and and not from a that that piece of garbage but that okay i cannot fix this by continuing to try and show up in a different way and and whatever that looks like you are on the journey if you made it this far yeah. you listening so nate thank you so much for joining of me on waking up the narcissism yeah. and uh we will have you back on soon great Look all right thanks a lot yep.